Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'd like to welcome you all to a food agenda for the next administration. This is the second in a speaker series that is um, being put on that is looking at the world food crisis and potential solutions. It's a speaker series that is sponsored by Agriculture and Metropolitan Regions, the Center for Global Metropolitan Studies, the Knight Program for Environmental and Science Journalism, and the Berkeley Institute for the Environment. So we'd like to really warmly welcome you here this evening. I'll talk briefly uh, about Agriculture and Metropolitan Regions, which is a new program at UC Berkeley, which is looking at specifically food and agriculture systems as a very important framework to build <coughs> resilient city regions that consider their food systems and agriculture systems equally important as looking at elements of their built environment. Another program that um, AMR is involved with is a project with the Sacramento Area Council of Governments, which has done a, an extraordinary job of their blueprint, which is an urban land use and transportation plan, and is now taking on, which is a, effectively a green print, really looking to understand their um, rural areas with the same degree of specificity and, and understanding. And we're collaborating on that with UC Davis, which is a great pleasure. Um, uh, I have a, um, a website here for those of you who are interested in joining the AMR Affinity Group, um, and you can sign up for this Affinity Group with a portal I'll read slowly, which is um, HTTP semicolon slash slash enviro.berkeley.edu slash AMR. So by all means sign up. We're looking forward to putting on another session in November, which will be on the subject of local food sheds, um, this panel looking more at national policy. So tonight's panel is going to be really a conversation amongst our esteemed panelists. They're going to themselves look at the policies that are needed to establish a developer, a healthy food and agriculture system in the United States, not a, not a uh, modest order by any means. And then there'll be an opportunity for questions. So during the panel, in about half an hour, um, some students will hand out questions. We invite you to fill in your questions, and we'll give them to Judith um, to, uh, to, to present to the panelists. Um, I'd now like to introduce introduce Judith, Gor excuse me, Cynthia Gorney, um, I'm getting confused with Judith Redmond over here, who is going to be our moderator this evening. Um, Cynthia is with the faculty at the Journalism School, where she, joined, <coughs> where she joined the faculty in 1999 after a distinguished career that included the Washington Post, where she served as an award-winning national features writer. Um, she also was the South American Bureau Chief and the first writer for the Post's style section based on the West Coast. She's the author of Articles of Faith, A History of Abortion Wars, and has written for many magazines, including The New Yorker, National Geographic, Harper's Sports Illustrated, New York Times Magazine, and uh, for, for several others. And she's currently a National Geographic contributing writer and also a graduate of the University of, uh, of California at Berkeley. Um, I think tonight's subject of food is a really laden subject. It's a word that means much to all of us, and I think it's a word with a whole wide range of, of meanings. We were considering calling this a food and agriculture agenda for the next administration, because for many of us, 
food really encompasses agriculture. But we'll leave it here to the panel to um, discuss their own rich array of ideas. And so let me hand it over to Cynthia. Thank you so much. I'd like to introduce our guest tonight. Thanks to everybody for coming out. Um, all the way on the right here, this is Mark Ritchie, who is the Secretary of State for Minnesota, who uh, came here just for this today. He's going back at midnight tonight. He is the president of Roots for Change. I beg oh. your pardon. He's the, he's the uh, president of the Institute uh, for Agriculture and Trade Policy which Michael Pollan hastened to remind me is the most important NGO organizing on these issues around. Uh, to his left is Judith Redmond. I'm Cynthia, she's Judith, who is the co-founder of Full Belly Farms, which is in the Cape Valley. She is the president of the Community Alliance with Family Farmers and the full-bellied, wonderful produce. Uh, any of us in this audience who shop regularly at Star Market are familiar with it as well as the local boxes that end up on our front steps. To Judith's left is our Michael Pollan, known, I'm sure, to most of the people in this audience, who's on the faculty of the Graduate School of Journalism and has become one of the leading voices, if not the leading voice, in the new national dialogue about food and agriculture policy. Michael is the author of The Omnivore's Dilemma, more recently, In Defense of Food, and in particular, with regard to tonight's conversation, has a big cover story coming out in uh, the New York Times Magazine on Sunday, October 12th, which is actually a Dear Mr. President-Elect letter, which he'll tell you more about this evening. To Michael's left is, Mark, is uh, Michael Dimmick. We have two Michaels tonight, who is the president of Roots for Change. They are the outfit behind the um, posters and the signing campaign going on out there. And they are organizing a statewide campaign uh, with the modest goal of transforming the California agricultural and food system. Because you came the farthest, Secretary of State Ritchie, um, I'd like to ask you to start. And what the format we're going to follow this evening is I'm going to ask each of these four experts to talk a little bit about the same question. They're going to then have as free-willing a conversation as we hope they can have, and then we're going to open it up for a good 20 minutes at least, maybe a half hour to questions, so that we'll try to get everybody out of here before 9 o'clock. The question I'd like you all to, to take on, for starters, is I'd like you to imagine that you have been summoned as the president, whoever he may be, decides to think about this new agenda. And my question to you, I guess, on behalf of the president-elect, is what are the most important issues on the new agenda with regard to food? And also, how did the work that you have been doing most recently in food policy lead you to believe this? So if you could start off. Great. Well, Thank you, and thank you to everyone who worked to put this together and make this possible. I hope this is the first of many conversations about the new agenda, and I hope also we have a chance to get a lot more voices into this discussion. I've been thinking about this for a number of years because 20-some uh, years ago I served in the um, office of the Secretary of Agriculture inside of my state of Minnesota, and it was a time of a tremendous crisis in agriculture, and there was a beginning of a process of beginning to debate what should be done about that crisis, and there were a lot of 
big rallies and demonstrations. There were, you know, farm foreclosures where it ended with um, penny auctions and all kinds of things going on. But what was clear was that when people saw a crisis that affected their whole community, they got organized and began moving, and they began putting forward proposals and ideas, and the ideas came in from many streams, and the streams came together. And actually, I think at that time, uh, tackled that direct crisis, that farm credit crisis of that time in the 1980s with really the right approach. And I would recommend those folks who are trying to figure out what to do with Wall Street to take a look at uh, what happened at that time around the credit crisis there. But as I fast forward and think into the future, I'm aware of some of the changes and some of the specific things that I would need to be talking about if I was sitting down with whomever is the new president. And I'd want to be talking with them um, in a kind of realistic way that you have to talk to people who suddenly find themselves in positions of political power, which is that they have to think about the immediate, the midterm, and maybe, if you can really, really get them in the right moment, the long term. That's how I've experienced, now that I'm uh, part of the electoral politics, uh, at least in my state and region. And I'd be pushing that new president on the things that they can do right away without any action from Congress. The president, the secretary of agriculture, the secretary of treasury, the U.S. trade representative, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, and many, many more people, including... Uh, whoever's the Secretary of Defense, have enormous discretion within their current authority to do all kinds of things, adjusting procurement, changing the way that money from the government flows in terms of carrots and terms of sticks that might come about in terms of regulation. I would be talking about things that can be done immediately, and we have some problems that demand an immediate solution. What we're uh, now understanding has come about because of the um, contamination of food in China and its global impact just reinforces that food safety is a, now a constant issue. And it's one that actually we get quite a bit of leverage in terms of pushing on changes because we have these repetitive food safety crises. Of course, we have um, the issue of rising cost of many basic needs. And so that our citizens who are on fixed incomes, our citizens who found themselves out of work or who've been chronically um, in poverty uh, facing additional challenges. And there is now momentum to talk about the government intervening, at least in terms of the crisis on Wall Street, that does open up the conversation ideologically to discuss intervening on the crisis that's facing people in their direct lives. And so we have a um, lot of flexibility in the system now that a president, a secretary of agriculture, and others in those senior cabinet positions can make. Uh, they can make their own actions now, and that would be the first part of the conversation. But we'd also have to start talking very quickly about a legislative agenda, because there is only a certain amount of time in the life of a presidency where there's momentum. There's a kind of honeymoon in the beginning, and there's an opportunity for some legislative initiatives. Some of them come at you, like the next farm bill or the reauthorization of Clean Water Act or all kinds of things come at you. You have to be prepared. But also you have the possibility of some initiatives of making some things happen. The uh, current energy that you have in California about addressing climate change issues, um, that energy will sweep the rest of the nation. It will help lift up some changes. That's the kind of thing that could be more medium term, and I'd like to be in that conversation. 
When I think long term, and I really am, am uh, unfortunately very serious about how little opportunity there is to think and act in a long term, but perhaps the level of crisis that we're facing now on Wall Street, in the economy, in the climate, maybe these things add up to an opportunity to really think deeply and more long term. The thing that's on my mind is going back to actually a very old proposal about a global food security convention. We have free trade agreements, we have global environmental agreements, we have all kinds of global agreements. We've been asking for and now we need to start to demand a global food security agreement that puts food and food security front and center, makes it number one because it's part of the human right to food. And we need to move that agenda, just like we moved the agenda around climate change in Kyoto, move the agenda around the law of the sea. We need to begin moving long-term something around a global food security agreement. I think there are other long-term things that we need to look at. There's certainly other medium-term things, and there's probably hundreds of short-term things. But I want to be pushing that president to be thinking in those three categories and then getting to see what would be within the realm of possibility as we go forward. Thank you. Okay, Judith? Okay, so when, when I um, will be talking to the, the president-elect, I think I would probably want to talk to them as a farmer and a little bit about my background, which was that I became a farmer because I thought um, it would be a great way to work, work outside, uh, which was something that I really liked to do, and to grow really, really great food for my friends and family. That was many, many years ago, and what I found after becoming a farmer was something that um, one of the farmers that was in Mike, one of Michael's books um, wrote a book titled, Everything Good That I Want to Do is Illegal. <laughs> and I found out that pretty much um, a lot of the really good things that I want to do on my farm are illegal. I grow habitat for beneficial insects, for example, elderberry bushes, and the agency people come along and say, oh, you better get rid of those because you'll get in trouble with the Endangered Species Act. Or I grow grassed waterways along the side of my farms, and I find out that maybe the water quality people do like those, but the food safety police really want me to get rid of them because they might harbor contaminants. So I would talk to the president-elect about the fact that if he wants to have an agenda to change um, food and farming, I think it will be very important to... I'll reach out to um, what we think of as traditional and mainstream agriculture, especially in California. There's a lot of political muscle there. And farmers feel really hemmed in by incredibly contradictory regulations and rules that they can't possibly follow. And um, also very, um, in some ways, attacked by the um, very polarizing debate here in California between the environmental community and the agricultural community. And the way that we sometimes frame these conversations has actually pushed a lot of mainstream agriculture into the um, hands of the people who, like John McCain, say that what we need in the future is less regulation, fewer taxes, more property rights, and um, pretty much away from a lot of the things that we really care about. So one thing that I think we really need to figure out if we want to bring food and agriculture to the front and center of the national agenda, I really hope that we can figure out ways to engage 
the uh, mainstream and traditional farmers because I think they know a whole lot. They, 26 million acres in California are controlled by ranchers and farmers, and they know a lot about how to manage and steward the environment. They also know a lot about the logistics of the food system from the farm all the way up the supply chain. I think farmers know a lot about those logistics that some of us who are activists in the food system are trying to kind of recreate. So, um, you know, in California um, really carries a lot of political muscle. Our agricultural community in California, we're the number one agricultural state. We're, in terms of gross receipts, we're way ahead of number two and number three. We're a very important agricultural state, and so we wield a lot of um, political power. And so how are we going to do a better job of engaging those farmers? And I think Barack Obama's political agricultural platform does uh, has, has a beginning. He talks about assistance to new farmers, assistance um, to organic farmers. He talks about putting a cap on subsidy payments to any individual farm, a cap of $250,000. Um, um, so so I, think, I think those are really important things because the, the fastest growing um, kind of farmer across the America is the young person, the woman, and the immigrant. Those are the three fastest growing kinds of farmers that, that we're getting more and more small-scale immigrant and women and young farmers in, in the United States. So um, I think there's a lot of reasons that farmers are pushed away from our agenda. One of them is what I described about con contradictory regulations. Another is that the public investment in research and education and cooperative extension in, in agriculture has declined precipitously since the 1990s. And that's really not only changed what goes on here at the university, it's also changed the entire civic conversation about agriculture because that conversation has been taken over by the agenda of corporations. They're the people that are investing in the research and education here at the university. And they've also captured the loyalties, I think, of the farm community. So we need to use political and community organizing to argue that a healthy food and agricultural sector is the foundation of a healthy society. I really believe that because all of these issues about food and farming, they're environmental issues, they're health, food and health issues, and they're even, they even become cultural and spiritual issues when you see people come out to a farm and be transformed by that experience. So I think family farmers are really uniquely qualified to help us strike a positive chord on a lot of the issues and values that we really care deeply about. So that's the first point that I'd make. But I do have a second point. Um, and that second point might um, be more for our community of activists, the people that have been working on these issues a great deal. It's a little bit about, again, the strategy. How are we going to get this big agenda that I think Michael Dimmick's going to talk a little bit about? How are we going to achieve it? What, what kinds of strategies can we use to um, achieve this really, really big job? We kind of need a blueprint, because we're talking about something that's decentralized. We're talking about transforming not just the, the way people farm and the way people buy their food at the grocery store. Also, we're, we're trying to transform all the way up the supply chain, the um, wholesale distributors, even the brokers, even the exporters. Every step that you take up that chain, you're, you're really challenging the power, larger and larger 
powers. And so I think we need some kind of a blueprint that looks at every step along the way. And in this regard, I think that our metric of local, which is something that we're talking a lot about and I'm sure we'll talk about tonight, I think that's um, a very good base to begin with, but we shouldn't stop there. We need to um, build our movement around a whole bunch of other values as well. Diversity, for example. Multifunctionality, in other words, does that model work for the environment, the economy, and the community? Is it multifunctional? Um, is it responsive to the community? Those kinds of things have to be brought into all of our models. And there's, um, if many of you may already be aware, there's a multiple, multitude, multitude, dozens and dozens of nonprofit organizations working on these issues. Uh, the, the folks like that are doing farm to school, farm to institution, um, gr groups that are bringing local family farm food to schools, universities, and hospitals. They're sort of rethinking how does a broker work. And they're trying to base their models on environmental and community values. There's also a multitude of businesses doing the same thing in the same way, community-supported agriculture. There's people doing the fair trade stuff, trying to support export models that are, are better for the environment. But it's a little bit ad hoc. We have to network it together. And I'm um, advocating that we view that campaign that's been very successful, buy fresh, buy local, as a base upon which we can build from the grassroots up to eventually challenge those businesses that really control our seeds, like Monsanto, our grocery cart, like Walmart, and the way that all of the foods that, that people all around the world eat, the rice, the wheat, the, the soybeans, all of those basic commodities are controlled by uh, you know, very few corporations like Cargill. So in terms of our message to the next administration, let's not shy away from policies that challenge this consolidation that's so um, evil for our food system. If Freddie and Fannie were too big and were under-regulated, so are Cargill and Monsanto. <laughs> Yes. Good evening. Um, it's nice to be here. I, uh, I'm going to jump right in and talk uh, about what um, I think we could ask the next president to do. Uh, I think it's an exciting time for a new president to take office in light of what's going on in the financial markets. And um, I, I think actually that, that creates a perfect context to talk about, uh, uh, to, to actually begin a conversation with the next president. Uh, I think that the, the thing that's been occurring to me over the last several days, two weeks, is that um, what we've been watching in the financial markets uh, really began a long time ago. Uh, if you look at the deregulation system that went on, or deregulation activity that went on beginning in the Reagan administration and through, through the Clinton administration, obviously in, in the Bush administration. Um, but it became very apparent that there were problems be beginning in about 2000 when the dot-com uh, crash occurred. And then there were a series of incidents in the economic sector. Uh, there was Enron. Then there was the failure uh, of uh, some hedge funds. Then there was an increasing volatility in the market. And then now, and particularly in the, um, the credit markets. And now we're looking at this at a meltdown. I would... I would posit that we are facing a very similar situation in the food system, that uh, it's about the year 2000 right now, 
and that there are uh, a perfect storm of things on the horizon that the next president has to be um, very cognizant of and take proactive action to avoid the same kind of crisis in the food system. And we had an indication um, of some of these things. For instance, uh, we, the price of oil is the, the, the base of the food system's ability to deliver cheap food. We know that, right? Michael's written about it. Other people have written about it. Um, the amount of corn that's produced in the Midwest, um, and all of it's based on oil. I had a very interesting conversation with a, uh, a geneticist from Monsanto two weeks ago at UC Davis at a conference. The only thing we agreed on was that oil is the Achilles heel of the current food system. Um, and it was a very interesting conversation. He said 10 years ago I realized everything that I'm working on could collapse because of the price of oil. And so uh, that's going on. We have the foodborne illness, which Mark mentioned. Uh, we have obesity. Um, we have uh, the fact that many farmers in the state of California and in other parts of the country are going broke. Very few are actually making it. Um, and we have communities in the country that are, not, that are starving, basically, are, are, are malnourished. Uh, all of these things, if you look at history, and, and uh, I studied history, that was kind of my passion in, in, in college and graduate school and, and still continue to read. If you study history, one of the great triggers of social unrest is the food system, the food system of a culture. Um, and what we just saw when the price of oil rose, we saw uh, dictatorships uh, collapsing. Uh, and so those issues are on the horizon. So I would say that this president has to avoid those, those, those problems, and, I, and I, would, I would suggest there are four things that have to happen. The first is that we have to change the current goals uh, which frame the system. We, have a, uh, we created a system that actually has worked very well. We wanted cheap calories. We got them. We have cheap calories that are making us ill, that are destroying the land and the farming systems that we have. So we need to change the goal, and that's really what this uh, declaration that you see outside, and I encourage everyone to, to, to endorse or comment on that declaration, because it, it, it creates a set of principles based on a set of values for reframing policies and programs going forward um, to broaden the base of values, as, as was said by Judith, and actually to make health the primary goal of the food system. So food and agriculture would be actually framed, or, or um, the framework for food and agriculture, all activities, decision making, and this is probably um, uh, a long-term goal, but we could initiate some things to start that, um, to reframe agriculture. And, and uh, health has to be thought of as human health, community health, and the planet. That is, the, the animals, the natural systems, uh, within it. And then from that, you have to create a series of programs that create the right incentives. Right now, we have incentives to create cheap corn. Um, what we need are a set of incentives to reintegrate human beings with the natural world because we have separated ourselves from the biological world. I was talking with a group of fellows from a program this morning, and we talked about the fact that in the Bible it says uh, that we left the garden. And the idea of that as a metaphor, that we actually have to go back to the garden. We have to actually reintegrate human beings with the natural world. And um, so we need incentives to do that. And California, I can talk perhaps later, mentioned, California is taking the lead. There are many great farmers in the state that are doing that. The next thing is, after we have a set of incentives, well, actually, beyond biological farming, we need incentives for feeding people more pro properly that are connected to the health care system. Um, then moving to the development of regional and local food systems. I think that um, there has been, in my view, a, a loss of democracy in some sense in this country for the last 
couple of decades perhaps, and um, I think that the food system becomes a, a fractal for, uh, for creating more democracy, more local control, more um, food sovereignty uh, in the system. I think there's, a, there's, a, there's some important uh, possibilities. And we need, a, we need a, a national policy that supports the regionalization of food production uh, in the country. And there are actually some good examples of, of things that could come out of that. And then finally, the fourth thing I would say is that uh, this is a long-term process. It's going to take a generation to change the food system. Uh, we at Roots of Change believe it's going to t we're, we're, we're aiming for 2030, right? In the year 2030, you'd like to see a sustainable food system in the state of California. And so it's going to take a long time. And, and therefore, we have time to do the following. That is, the president um, should actually, uh, through the Department of Education, provide a program along the lines of what Alice Waters talks about. We need to teach children how to garden, how to prepare food, and the basics of nutrition. Because those three areas, understanding those three areas, become, uh, again, a, a, a paradigm-shaping activity that will affect the next generation going into the long term. People re -underst will understand uh, what it means to be integrated with nature through their gardening. They'll understand what it means to create community and share through the, the meal, uh, the, uh, the preparation of meals and, and, and the nurturing of each other through meals. And finally, um, uh, through the study of nutrition, they'll understand the basis of health. So, uh, and I don't mean nutritionism, uh, uh, as you talk about in Defense of Food. I'm talking about some, some, some basic nutrition. So those are the things that I would share with the next president. Okay. And uh, Michael. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm going to try to offer a little synthesis, because uh, I, I agree with a lot of what I heard here. And, uh, and as a journalist, I think that's what I can bring to this conversation. Um, all the people on this panel actually are, are my teachers, and uh, they're all sources. They're all people I, I call to interview when I'm doing a piece like the one I'm working on, a new agenda uh, for the next administration. So um, I'm going to reflect back at them, some of the things they said, but try to put it in a different context that might be helpful in selling these ideas to the, to the larger society. Uh, because we know that the marketing of political ideas is, is often as important as the ideas themselves. I think the challenge would be, if I got called in by the next president, would be getting his attention to these issues. He's going to have a lot of other things that will, will certainly uh, feel more pressing than the food issue. Um, and the ventures, we haven't seen a whole lot of talk uh, from either candidate. Uh, one of the problems is that to get elected president in this country, you have to pass through the gates of Iowa, where you're forced to bow down before crop subsidies and ethanol. And uh, everybody did that. Um, so the conversation about agriculture gets a little bit distorted right off the bat in a presidential election. But if I got called into the Oval Office to have this conversation, I think the point I would make is that even though you didn't talk too much about food on the campaign trail, you did talk about some other things, including energy independence, climate change, and the health care crisis. And my... Um, my point to you is that as, as you try to tackle those three issues, you will find you cannot make progress on any of them without looking at food. And here's why. Food is the shadow issue behind all three of those issues. Um, food, as, as Michael suggested, uh, consumes a huge amount of fossil fuel, 19% approximately of our fossil fuel. We are not going to become energy independent 
unless we can squeeze a lot of fossil fuel out of this food system. Uh, For that reason and others, uh, the food system contributes mightily to climate change. It is a, uh, perhaps the largest industry, uh, first or second, in terms of its, the amount of greenhouse gases, not just carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuel, but nitrous oxide from synthetic fertilizers, methane from livestock, um, the, the mere tilling of the soil the way we do it, the clearing of land. Uh, it is somewhere between 20 and 35 percent of greenhouse gases can be traced to the way we're feeding ourselves today. So you are not going to make significant progress on that issue unless you confront agriculture. Um, the health care crisis. Uh, the candidates both agree that you need to get the costs of health care under control. In my lifetime, since I was a boy, um, national, the percentage of national income uh, spent on health care has gone from 5% in 1960 to 17% today. Um, There are many reasons for that increase in cost, but you cannot escape the fact that we're spending a tremendous amount of money in upwards of $250 billion a year on diet-related chronic diseases. So unless you confront the catastrophe that is the American diet, you are not going to get health care costs under control. So that's how I would start the conversation, to make the president understand that in the medium and the long term, Unless you deal with food, you're going to have trouble dealing with the rest of your agenda. Um, I would also make the point that the problem and the solution to those problems, to all three of those issues, uh, can be put under a single umbrella. Um, Not all of them, but most of them. To the extent we can take the food system off of this diet of fossil fuel that it is reliant on, and put it back on a diet of contemporary sunshine, to the extent we can re-solarize the food system, we will cut down on the energy use, we will dramatically cut down, and not just mitigate uh, greenhouse gases, but actually have an agriculture that can be part of the solution, because we can use our 700 million acres of crop and, uh, and rangeland to actually sequester huge amounts of carbon, up to 14%, according to a Pew Commission study. And we can attack the problem of the diet. The same things you need to do to squeeze fossil fuel out of the food system will produce, and we can talk about the exact mechanisms through which you do this, will produce not only a more ecologically sustainable food system, less fossil fuel reliant, but it will produce healthier food. You can have your cake and eat it too. And that um, to the extent that diversification is the key to getting agriculture off of fossil fuel, diversification at every level, and you really have to attack this at, at all three levels, the farm, the farm economy or the marketplace, and the food culture, um, you, can, uh, you can solve all these three problems at once. There is a very positive agenda that you can design around this idea of re-solarizing agriculture. And guess what? You start with this incredibly hopeful fact that food production is the original solar technology. Every calorie you've ever eaten is the product of photosynthesis. So re-solarizing our eating is going to be, can be, a lot easier than re-solarizing a lot of other things about contemporary life. So as we go on, we can talk about a little bit of of, of what you have to do at each step of the way 
to, uh, to push this agenda. But I would organize it around that idea, a sunshine agenda for the next administration. Has any of you been tapped yet for Secretary of Agriculture? Or for, I mean, I'm actually... Well, Mark is on Mark, some short lists. I'm, I'm asking this in a serious manner. I'm wondering whether you have served as an advisor to the campaign on some of these issues and whether you've gotten feelers. Well, I, I'm running the elections in Minnesota, so I stay away from all the campaigns. But I know that um, the attention in the political world and the political community really, by necessity, stays on the campaign itself and right. on winning. Okay. Well, the dilemma of needing to govern, then, is a completely other world. And I think the, the genius of putting this together tonight and other conversations is that we have to develop the political world at both levels. We have a democracy, we have elections, that chooses the people who get to make these decisions, but where are the ideas? Where do they come from and then how can they be sold has to come from a much broader community, which is you know, what's great about this panel tonight and this whole process. You've all been tossing around some extremely provocative, highfalutin ideas. I'd like to bring this kind of literally down to the ground, Michael Pollan, by asking you to Explain what you're proposing about the White House lawn and what it means in your piece. Well, to, go, to leap ahead from the hard, you know, the, the hard nuts and bolts of dismantling monoculture, which is really the key, I yeah, think, yeah. to resolarizing agriculture. The reason that agriculture requires so much fossil fuel is because that's what you need to sustain a giant monoculture of corn or soy or anything else. You need the fossil fuel for the, uh, the pesticides. That's what they're made from is petroleum. And you need the fossil fuel fertilizer. Um, there's no way you can sustain a monoculture without fossil fuel. Um, so so there's, there's the nut, nuts and bolts. But I also think that one of the most important things a president can do is uh, by the power of his or her own example. And what happens in the White House, I think, around food issues is going to have a tremendous influence. So one of my proposals to change the culture of food, and Michael was absolutely right that we need to start with you know, the generation just now starting school, um, would be to rip out at least five acres of the White House lawn. It's a beautiful site for a garden. And put there a, uh, five acres of uh, vegetables. Maybe some animals. I'm not sure. Um, but you gotta have animals. You gotta have animals to have a sustainable agriculture. But I would, what I would say is, so you know how the, the president always, or the or the first lady, will select a White House chef. Well, we need a White House farmer, and we need. There she is. I have someone to nominate, actually. Yeah. Um, it would be very hard to get her to move to I was going to say, I don't see her having a jolly time and in Washington, D.C. The, the fungal diseases you have to deal with in Washington, you don't want. I don't wish on anyone. But I think we need a White House farmer for several reasons. One is to design this garden because it will be a showplace for... And by the way, there has been a victory garden in the White House. Eleanor Roosevelt put one in in 1943 over the objections of her USDA which told her, you're really going to um, chill uh, the industrialization of agriculture if you do this. The food industry is going to hate it. And she went ahead and did it anyway and started this huge victory garden movement. So it, it, it has been there. And there are probably records that show where it was and what they grew. But by having a White House farmer, you will shine a certain light on farming. And it's a very good way to hold up someone and say, look, we need more of these people. 
We need to increase the prestige of farming in our culture, which we have denigrated for a hundred years now. And um, in the same way that a White House chef could, could shine a light on a certain way of eating, and I think that's an important decision too. And I think that we should, you know, all write a petition and nominate Alice Waters to do that. Um, Another need- unlikely transfer <laughs> possibility. Actually, I think she would do it in uh, a heartbeat. Um, <laughs> But we, uh, but I, I think a White House. Who gets elected? Yeah. Well, that's true. <laughs> um, I think that a White House farmer and a White House farm would be a very good way to set the tone. Well, we did it outside the Civic Center. Well, that's I was right. going to ask. Tell us about. Were you involved in the farm that was outside the Civic Center? And it's still there. It right? was. It was a, a farm that was built by a nonprofit organization that does that all over urban. Uh, Bay Area. Okay, talk a building. little bit about the creation of that thing. I don't know how many of you have seen it, but it's pretty astonishing. Its its walls are bales, and there's crops growing in the great park in front of the Golden Dome of the San Francisco Civic Center. It is wild. Yeah, Tell us it about was, it, Judy. Well, I, I um, only know, I uh, wasn't all that involved in building that garden. I know that it is still there. It was put um, there for the Slow and Food And it was put there for right? the Slow Food Nation. Um, and I agree with Michael that um, we all need not only a family doctor, but also a family <laughs> farmer for our own family. So I think that was a, a great idea. And I think, just to go back, I mean, I think that the, the actual, the symbology of putting a garden uh, in the center of a city is really important. Um, it's, it goes back to this idea of regional food systems. Um, we all know what a watershed is, and we all know the importance of watersheds in terms of understanding how to manage or how to, in, how to integrate human beings in with a natural cycle of water. Um, I think the idea of food sheds uh, is very important. And again, going back to the idea of, 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 of setting patterns or solving for pattern, if you put a garden in the middle of a city, um, that affects the way people think about their city and about food, and that becomes a bridge for people to think about the food shed around them. And it becomes, I think, really important, and, uh, and, and San Francisco has taken the lead on this by planting the first garden. Um, Roots of Change is, is promoting, and if you're picking up some of the propaganda outside, we're asking you to write uh, the governor. We think there should be in Sacramento, California, biggest ag state in the union. We should, have, uh, we should have a garden there. Um, so, and and it, wherever you live, I mean, Berkeley should have a garden. Berkeley has. Across from the city hall? No, it's true. That's I think it would be very important right. for us to do that. And it, it may seem in some ways soft or, or you know, kind of a, a soft approach, but I think actually it affects people's thinking. Let me ask you to elaborate on that a little bit. Judith, when you were talking about the things that you would propose to the new president, you spoke of the distribution along the supply chain and of, as a farmer, the places where you saw that needing attention. Can you help us understand this in a specific way by taking one point of distribution, explaining why it's problematic in its larger scale for the family farmer and what you see as a way to fix it? Well, We're talking it, about a multi-scale chain, obviously. So just help us, for those of us who don't understand the farmer economy, just look at one link in that chain. I, I think um, Mark would be really great at talking about that in terms of the global situation and, and how, um, the, in fact, a lot of the policies of American agriculture have really harmed farmers all over the world. Um, so I, let's start I, at your I, end, I, and then we can go yeah. to his end. Yeah, right. um, but, but, you know, I, I think that it more in terms of 
um, let's say, the wholesale market, where the, the, it's a very, very competitive market. It's very difficult for new farmers or small-scale farmers or family farmers to get in. There's all these new regulations about food safety that say that if you want to sell to large chains, you're not um, – you have to pass food safety audits that are pretty much um, – um, ex- extremely expensive and very, very biased against a, di- a diverse um, farm that grows many different uh, crops. So um, th- there's all there's all these. Uh, the, the marketplace is not level. It turns out in terms of um, farms that are um, really large, industrial scale, just growing one or two crops. They have a very different. Um, set of challenges to face that are um, very much guided by policies that are written in order to make it easy for them to jump through those hoops, but they're very, very difficult for um, a diverse or small-scale farm that perhaps doesn't, English isn't their first language, all of those kinds of things. So the the models that solve some of those problems that exist um, for, for a farmer trying to sell to uh, you know, a large buyer like Walmart or um, a large wholesale distributor, there's models that exist that say, okay, well, what about you start as a, a young farmer by selling to farmer's markets or you start by selling to, uh, by uh, creating a community-supported agriculture system, something that allows you to make direct relationships with the public. So um, I feel like we've really ach- achieved some models that help um, at that level, and there's also... Um, wholesale, wholesale distributors and people at, at other levels sort of attempting to change the, um, the, the playing field so that it is more level across the board in terms of um, uh, these issues. But I, I think that it's, it's, um, we need to uh, knit those networks together so that um, we even can challenge uh, the, the situation that's really... Um, in the, the Walmarts and the Cargills and the Monsantos, the folks that are really making those policies just so that our industrial food system is the dominant one. Well, let me ask you the same question really in your hat as someone who understands policy now at the state and government level, particularly you're not exactly in charge of agriculture, but you see what things look like from the state level. As an outsider, some of us who are not that familiar with your issues may be hearing you guys arguing simultaneously for more and less regulation. And so help us understand that. If I were a Cargill defender listening to Judith, I imagine the first thing out of my mouth after what she just said would be, apart from the health issues generally about obesity and things like that, we have the safest food system in the world. We don't have outbreaks like the milk contamination in China. And this is why, how can you be arguing that this food system should be tinkered with so that you can get stuff through that hasn't been adequately checked? Mark? Well, I, I think um, I want to take a, I want to address your question, and then I want to talk a little bit about one aspect of that global chain and sure. how we interact. Because the thing that's you know, in a kind of edu- public education sense, great about this terrible, terrible disaster in China is, in fact, because we have globalized the system, then when greed creates illegal and, in this case, deadly behavior on the part of manufacturers, it then goes global. And we have those products in the United States right now. 
Now, we've dismantled our import testing procedures. I think we're below 2%. We may be below 1% of imported foods being tested. So essentially, we just let anything in. And with the free trade agreements that have been negotiated, we've really taken away the ability to stop and label things at any kind of significant level. So this globalization means that when a corrupt or greedy business person any place on the planet decides to put a poison inside of a food product, it's done at such a scale now that it will become a global problem very quickly. And if it's ignored at the local level because of a bribe, it's ignored at a national level because of an attempt to have a certain impression during the Olympics, it's ignored at the border in San Francisco and Los Angeles because we've dismantled and deregulated import controls, and then, then it's at an emergency room with a dying baby in St. Louis. And when the dying babies are a mechanism of regulation, we've lost our way as a society. We've lost our core values as a culture, and that's where we are. Now, this is the tail end of a long process, and we could go on and on about it. But we find many, many examples of how sort of inadvertently we create a situation, we try to respond to it, and we go round and round and we create other problems. Uh, during the Vietnam War, the United States essentially took over the job of producing rice for the people of South Vietnam, and we built up a huge rice production capacity and a rice milling capacity, mostly in California, although Texas, Arkansas, very big, Mississippi, even less. But after the war and the uh, Vietnamese took over their own production and, and became their own society, um, rice farmers in California all of the United States faced very low prices, a very terrible situation. In the midst of trade negotiations, you have the Japanese auto companies, Honda and Toyota, wanting to keep dumping more and more cars into the United States. The United States is starting to resist. They're starting to ask questions about manipulation of currency and all of those sorts of things. Then the Honda and the Toyota people go to the Japanese government and say, look, you're negotiating trade deals with the United States. We don't want any restrictions on our ability to dump cars into the United States. We want you to trade off our rice farmers in Japan as a concession to keep this ability to dump cars. The Japanese government is under tremendous pressure from the rice farmers. They're under tremendous pressure from their auto industry. They crack, and they agree with the United States. If you let us keep dumping cars, we will let you sell rice to Japan. And so they sign that in a global trade agreement. Japan is forced to import a portion of its rice. Well, when Japan imports 1%, 2%, 5%, 10% of their rice, it is a tremendous quantity of rice. And guess what? It's cheaper to get it from Bangladesh, from Pakistan, from Vietnam, than from California. All of a sudden, Japan is forced to buy rice from overseas. It buys it from countries who rice is the only staple food. It drives up the price to the local person in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, and Vietnam. It creates a crisis crisis for farmers who grew rice in Japan who suddenly have lost their market, crisis for poor people and rural people and urban people in the countries of Southeast Asia who've had their rice taken away and taken in to Vietnam, and no change for the situation of the farmers in the United States who were put into this terrible spot because of our military and foreign policy during the Vietnam War era. So you can create and you can see over time the intersection of these things. And when you have trade agreements that take away the power of governments to make adjustments, to adjust and move things around, and then when you create an ideological barrier to actually responding to issues of health, 
famine and hunger, then you kind of tie your hands behind your back and say, there's nothing that I can do. And when that baby dies in that hospital in St. Louis, when those villages in southern Mexico or in Bangladesh have famine and people begin to fall over, then the conversation changes. And I think we've reached that stage now again where we can have a conversation, but it's because we've reached a a new crisis, and that crisis has very specific people that we can point to and say, this is a broken system. Well, what do you do about that at the presidential level? And two-headed question, and whichever one of you wants to jump in on this first, tell us a little bit about what you've seen in the actual agendas of each of the parties that gives you a sense of what they would do. Well, I'll I'll say that, um, first of all, I I think others have said it, but neither of the candidates are talking about the food system. They're not talking about it. Energy is the closest they get, basically, and there have been a few comments. I I think Obama used the word farmer in his his, his acceptance speech at the convention, but um, uh, that was the only thing that I've heard. So... uh, but the, here's, here's the other piece that I think is evident in his campaign, at least. The idea of, of, colla- uh, of a more consensus-building uh, approach to problem-solving. Um, I think one of the best things that's been happening in California is that, is that farmers, environmentalists, and people who are working in the, labor, in the labor unions are actually talking now. And they've been doing it for almost four years in Sacramento every six weeks. And there is being head, headway is being made. And that is essential because go, going back to the broken system, one of the reasons the system is broken is because um, relationships, kind of traditional relationships in a food system have been broken. That is, um, uh, the co- co- competition in the value chain or the supply chain where um, the, the bottom of the system is competing with the top of the system and basically the top of the system that is the retailers and the processors are making all the money so what you have is people within the system fighting each other and so they're weakening each other in that competition so that that's a problem um and i think that so there need to be conversations there needs to be an approach within the food system where the players in the food system approach it more um in in a way where they're thinking of the whole where all of them can benefit from a different way of operation michael p what do you see well, in terms of this trade issue? Well, I, I'd like to in get terms to of anything specific issue. that you've seen in either campaign that right. gives you a sense of what they might do as president. Well, poor Barack Obama used, uttered the word arugula back in <laughs> Iowa and has been paying for it ever since. Um, I be- was it you who suggested that he just go back to rocket lettuce, which I is what it was originally called? We all need yeah. to go back and call it rocket. It's a, it's a venerable old American green, but it's got this elitist Italian uh, sheen on it, which is hurting the plant and the candidate. Um, hurting the plant's feelings. You know, no, there's, there, there, are, there are reasons having to do... It's, it's, it's funny. Food is a very touchy issue. Food is about identity and food is about class. And I think that it's very difficult for political candidates to talk about it. I mean, there was a whole discussion about the Obama, uh, Obamas were, you know, ate organic, and, and uh, Michelle talked about that in a, in a profile in the New Yorker. And in large parts of the country, this is regarded as a bad thing. It is regarded as a bad thing. Much worse than moose. Yeah. What? Sorry? Moose. Moose. There you go. <laughs> moose is okay. Arugula is bad. Um, and I think you have to be sensitive to those issues and, and find a, uh, a way to talk about food that is not, uh, not subject to being painted as elitist um, and talk more about where you're spending your money. Are you supporting you know, companies like Burger King or are you supporting farmers? I mean, well, you know, so to get back to about, their particular so, campaigns. 
So um, what I found encouraging, you know, I, I don't think either have said very much of significance. Um, I think it's been disappointing in a lot of ways. Um, I think that Obama, if you read, uh, if you read through his website in detail on health care, you see more uh, attention to the issue of diet and, and nutrition. And uh, I think that that's a very encouraging thing. And I think that there is some support for... Uh, you know, creating a new generation of farmers. Uh, and that, too, is very important because we are not going to fix this problem without several million more farmers in this country. Um, one of the, 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 you know, what fossil fuel has allowed us to do is replace farmers with chemicals and machinery. And so to the extent we take the fossil fuel out of the system, we're going to need a lot more people in it. And um, we're going to need to reconceptualize the farmer as, you know, one of the new green jobs that everybody's talking about, because it is that. We're talking about very sophisticated polyculture farming mm-hmm. that takes great amount of intelligence, uh, a real systems approach, um, and we're going to have to teach people how to do this. Um, so we need to rebuild that capability. In terms of the trade issue, though, I think it's really important, uh, and, and I've learned a lot from from Mark about this, that we need to respect the concept of food sovereignty, um, that, that countries should have some power over their food system. And we have, make no mistake, systematically been destroying it all around the world. I mean, a lot of this food crisis we see today is, is the direct result of structural adjustment policies pushed by our government, the IMF, the World Bank, to take things like grain reserves, to take things like subsidies for fertilizer in, 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 in countries in Africa, and say that you're distorting the market with all that. You must open your market as part of the condition for being you know, released from various loan obligations, and therefore we can flood your market, even though we subsidize our farmers. Uh, and that this has uh, had a, a, a really disastrous effect. And I think it's understood. I think the pendulum is switching. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is moving back. I, I think, you know, the whole cause of agricultural free trade is probably dead for a generation. Does this concept of food sovereignty include the right, say, of Brazil to announce that it's going to level its forests so that food can be planted there, or the right of another nation to choose to make ethanol out of its corn? I, I don't know on what basis you, you stop that. Um, I think it's a very good question, except that the reason that Brazil is leveling as far as to do that is because there is this, you know, market in soy that's being... Um, I mean, the, the spikes in prices we're seeing today, these, these really outrageous prices for agricultural commodities, which in large part is a result of our commitment to ethanol. I mean, our commitment to ethanol is part of the reason that you see the, the rainforest being leveled to grow more soy for either biodiesel but or only the Chinese a part. market. They're very keen on those products. If you look at Argentina, um, Argentina is an example of a country that had a large-scale, fairly sustainable uh, polyculture, agriculture. They, they have this eight-year rotation in a lot of places, or did, where you do five years of grass, pasture land, uh, and, you, and you grow the world's best beef on it. And then after five years, you can do three years of grain without any fertilizer whatsoever because you've built up the fertility of the soil. Plus, you don't need any herbicides because the weeds of the pastures don't afflict cropland and vice versa. And that this was a system that was working pretty well um, until we had this spike in soy prices, which is causing them to move toward an oil-based monoculture. So um, I think you can, you can reduce the pressure 
on that sort of agriculture, that export-based, very destructive agriculture by, by building up the concept of food sovereignty and letting countries have their own grain reserves if they want them and their own programs to assist farmers. All right. Well, on that note, may the wind be at your back, as the Irish say. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.